Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of this day, the opportunity to, uh, even as a church family, to learn a new hymn uh, that reminds us of glorious truth, uh, that it is not in our own strength and through our own efforts, but ultimately uh, because of you working, that we can say that a day can be dark, but we are not forsaken that we might be right now feeling like we're in the valley, but we know that your presence is always with us. And we thank you for uh, the reminders that we get of that in our relationships with one another, but also as we uh, open our Bibles and hear from servants of yours of a long time ago of the struggles that they went through and how you uh, protected them through any and every situation. And uh, I just thank you for the opportunity we have today to do that and just pray that you would help all of our hearts ultimately be open to what your spirit would have to say to us and not just any mere person. Uh, I claim no authority of my own and uh, only desire ultimately to hear your voice and to see your truth uh, presented to us today. So we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to open a Bible to the book of Exodus chapter 4. We broke from our series in Exodus uh, a month before Easter to focus on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ from each of the gospel writers. And we're coming back now uh, to Exodus. And in chapter four, we're sort of halfway through a pretty dramatic event that has taken place. And so it started uh, in chapter three with the encounter that Moses experienced at the burning bush and then heard the voice of God letting him know that even though Moses was now a long way away from Egypt, had gotten married, moved on to a new life, was a shepherd, that God had plans to send him back. Uh, and this was a, a struggle in a, a variety of regards. One, because Moses had actually fled because he had killed someone. And he feared for his own life, and so he got uh, away as a fugitive, uh, being afraid of what the penalty would be against him if he was ever discovered. And uh, we had heard already in the story that the Pharaoh at that time that would have known about that had passed on, but still, uh, so many years had passed, decades had passed, that it would have been hard to imagine uh, Moses being excited to go back to the place uh, where the majority of his people were enslaved and where he himself had done something terrible. And so we're picking up the middle of this conversation between God and him. And God has just assured him, he's like, you're gonna go and you're gonna bring all of the people back with you to this very place. And not only are you going to bring them, but you're gonna come with the plunder of Egypt, which means they're gonna be giving you their jewelry and their possessions. You are going to receive payment from them that will help you on your journey. And this is Moses' response. Uh, Exodus 4 verse 1. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. And so he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. And so he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. 
and he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. And so he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, that they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. And you shall speak to him and put uh, the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and he will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they're still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. And so Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. And then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet and said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone, and it was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And so he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and gathered all the elders of the people of Israel, and Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed, and when they had heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they had bowed their heads and worshipped. And that will conclude our reading for today. Uh, last evening in our service, uh, we were talking about how there are certain parts of this story that we don't remember in either the Charlton Heston version of the story or the VeggieTales version of the story. <laughs> that, uh, when you reread it, there's parts of it that uh, you feel like you get tripped up over, like a speed bump, and then you have to reread them, and we'll talk about those. Uh, it's with intention that we've read the whole thing and not skipped any part of it. And I did remember the announcement that I was supposed to make, but I'm still not going to tell you what it, uh, what it was. But it's weird that while I was reading, like, I thought of it. Um, so hopefully I didn't miss, like, two verses in the reading of it because of that. Uh, but as we've been in this series, uh, Exodus talks about, and will continue to talk about, amazingly miraculous things that happen. 
And it can for us, sometimes when we go back to it, just almost start to feel like a fantasy of, no, did those kinds of things really happen? And are those kinds of, is it possible to believe those sorts of miracles? And yet, one of the ways that uh, scripture for us affirms its trustworthiness as it tells the story is that regularly as those miraculous things happen, the people involved in them have very typical responses that you or I might have if something today were to happen that we just had no category for or expectation of, that we would be shocked by it, that we wouldn't know what to do with it. And so one of the things that this chapter reveals throughout is that no matter what God is doing, Moses genuinely is struggling with what God's telling him to do. And so we see an honest struggle from the last chapter and throughout. God had just gotten done telling him, it's going to be great. All the people are going to come back with you, and you're going to come with all the plunder of Egypt. And we open up, and he says, they're not going to listen to me. They're not going to believe that you talk to me. And then even after now more signs happen, in the staff changing to a snake, and his hand becoming leprous and then healed again, even in those signs, in verse 10, Moses' response is, Okay, but I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you to I'm slow of speech. Can you please send someone else? And so here we see there's, there's no lack on God's part of proving to Moses who he is and proving that he's powerful, but we still have ways of deflecting from what it is that God wants to do or ourselves increasingly feeling inadequate uh, when it starts to come, become real to us that God is up to something. So we can project on other people that they're not ready for it. And then when that excuse goes away, say, okay, I don't want to stop you. I don't think I can talk you out of this, but could you please use somebody else and not make me be the one to do it? And so he's struggling the whole time. And then even as it gets further on, he asks for peace, uh, for a, a blessing from Jethro to go. He goes. And then in verse 24 is one of those verses that you kind of trip over. It says, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. And you're like, wait a minute, who? The Lord is going after Pharaoh here? No, he's going after Moses here. Why? Because Moses is about to head to tell an entire group of people what they need to do. And you know what he's not doing? He's not doing it in his own home. And God is saying to him, I'm coming for you. Like, I'm not calling you to go tell a bunch of people to do stuff you're not doing. And his wife saves him, rescues him from that by taking decisive action when he's unwilling to do. And so we just see this incredibly human person with all of his flaws. And here again, it gives us this sense of the trustworthiness of what we're reading. Like, if Moses' main goal was to present himself as a hero to us, he wouldn't retell so many parts of this story. Because we only know about these things because of a sort of transparency that he has years and years later to say, let me tell you how it actually happened. <laughs> and let me tell you how much I was struggling with it along the way. Because if he wanted to have rewritten the story and say, you know, God appeared to me and I was like, yes, God, let's go. I've been waiting on you this whole time. I can't wait to go back to Egypt. He could have made himself sound better than he did, but he doesn't. He makes no effort to sort of whitewash the past, no effort to sort of cover over or gloss over his imperfections. He shares them. 
and part of, I think, how he can share them freely is because at the time of now recording this, he knows the end of the story. But he also gets that even though he knows the end of the story, he needs to be truthful about how it began and how it continued for people to really understand that when we get to the end, the goal is not to say, oh, Moses, you're so great, we can't wait to follow you. But wow, God is so awesome, and he is so worthy, and he's the one who's worthy of our worship. He is ultimately the one that we're supposed to follow. But it is just very human of us to not want to talk about uh, the parts of our past or experience that we wish other people didn't know. And we usually want to present the best version of ourselves to people. Uh, I'm reading a, a book right now that it'll be coming out next month, but I met the author, and so he sent me an advanced copy of it, and he talks primarily about his own experience in running a company that when he came onto it, very shortly thereafter, like everything went upside down. They had to let everyone go except two people, and he was assigned to go basically ask for forgiveness from everybody they owed money to to see if there was any chance to avoid this whole thing just going into bankruptcy and ceasing to exist. And so if there was any future, the future was only going to be in as much as people were willing to negotiate with them and take losses so that they could survive. And then uh, after he did that, years and years later, he was asked to give a talk uh, at a gathering of business leaders, and he was just giving uh, sort of the, the introduction to someone else, but he was asked now to speak because his company was doing really, really well. And he went up there and he said he looked out in the crowd and he saw a familiar face. And the familiar face wasn't like a family member that could smile and sort of give him a sense of assurance before he addresses a big crowd or a potential future client that you might be like, oh, we need to talk afterwards because you know, we have work to do. No, he, he, right before he went up, he saw one of the lawyers that he had had to negotiate with and plead for forgiveness for so that he wouldn't force his company into bankruptcy. And so he knew that that guy knew something that the rest of the room didn't know. And it just kind of made him you know, have this like ugh feeling of, you know, I'm about to go up and talk and most people will be looking at me and saying, wow, what a great guy, but I know that not everyone knows the story. And then he goes on to say, that the lawyer came up to him afterwards, sought him out, and just said quickly, it's amazing what you've been able to do, and walked away. And he realized in that moment, rather than coming up to him and saying, I know something about you other people don't know, or you owe something to me, like truly, there was an ability on this guy's part, because he had seen him at his low, to say, it is an amazing thing what's been able to happen. And so rather than it diminishing a sense of joy in the work and pride and accomplishments of what had taken place, if anything, it had magnified it. Because it was so bad before, it was a beautiful thing now that they were in a totally different situation. But if you read most people's resumes or LinkedIn profiles, I mean, nobody has on there really good at asking for forgiveness, right? Or really good at breaking bad news to funders. Uh, I don't have a LinkedIn profile, but I think I could put, what am I, 38 now? Okay, 38 years of experience of not making everybody happy. I think I have some experience in that. Like, I don't know if that's a doctorate by now or what or how many more years, but as long as I've been alive, you know what? I have still not figured out how to make everybody happy. We know those things, but there's not usually a sense of, like, 
joy in bragging about them. And you know forgiveness can be one of those things too. Jesus tells a parable about someone who's dramatically forgiven. Dramatically forgiven. Something that he couldn't with multiple lifetimes ever pay off. And a, a generous king forgives him. And then that same servant goes and now the role's reversed. Someone owes him and he has the opportunity himself to extend forgiveness. And the way it's leading, you just assume, of course, right? Wouldn't he be willing to forgive just like he was? And actually, it's, it's, it's exaggerated. He's owed so much less than he owed before. So, of course, he'd be willing to forgive. But the servant doesn't. And it's a profound point that Jesus is making, that though we all need forgiveness... And in that sense, therefore, none of us should be ashamed about it. We all need it. There's nobody you're looking at or sitting next to or have ever met that doesn't need forgiveness. There's still something in our prideful hearts that can be ashamed about it and say, you know what I'd rather? I'd rather never having received grace from somebody. I would rather have just done it on my own. I'd rather need nothing from no one. Well, if that's your bias, I, you want nothing from no one, and you want no one to ever help you, then even if someone comes and offers you grace and offers you forgiveness, you're not likely to have a thankfulness that wants to pass it on. You're likely to have a bitterness uh, that can simply grow and fester. We're supposed to have a thankfulness that says it's a wonder that God has so loved us, that he's forgiven us, that he cares about us, that we can then be truthful about our past struggles and our current struggles and recognize that that will never take away or diminish God's glory in his grace over us. And if anything, it will magnify it. Because who else can turn around broken things? Who else can raise dead things back to life? That's what God delights to do if we're willing to be open and honest about it. And here Moses tells us at multiple points just how hard it was for him to do what God was asking him to do. And without trying to be too simplistic, it's just something we need to remind ourselves. It's a hard to do hard things. It's period. It's really hard to do hard things. So even though God's assuring him, and I'm with you, and I'm going to do this for you, he he's, wants him to do something that's really hard. And in our humanity, we struggle with that. We can find all kinds of reasons to deflect and delay and ultimately just say, uh, do it with someone else. But I think part of why we get this faithful recording of his honest struggle is to then highlight for us how persistent God is. how persistent God is in Moses' life to say, I know you think they won't listen. I know you think you can't talk. Uh, and many of those things actually prove themselves to be true. Moses is not very good at talking. Uh, a bunch of times the people don't listen uh, to what he has to say. But God is persistent to say, I'm going to do this and I'm going to use you and I'll put other people in your lives. I'll, he, he graciously accommodates and says, what is that that you're holding? A staff, throw it on the ground, and it becomes a snake. And we have in here, not just God doing sort of cool magic tricks, 
but there's symbolism here with the nation of Egypt that they uh, would have used snakes for the pharaohs in the imagery of their headdress and stuff that God is saying, I am powerful, not just over this staff, I'm powerful over Egypt. And so when I send you there, like I'm on your team, I have more power than they do. And when his arm goes leprous and then comes back whole again, God is showing to him, not because uh, just as much, God had already done some pretty cool stuff, and he could just say, Moses, I'm not doing anything more for you. You're just not going to learn. No, he willingly gives him signs to encourage him, to show him his power. And then even when he says, please send someone else, God says, actually, okay, I will. But I'm not going to send someone else in a substitute for you. I'm going to send somebody else with you. And actually, I'm going to send him first to you. And so Aaron is going to come to you. And this is going to be, again, one of those ways that you're going to know you're not alone. And I'm going to be persistent to bring the people in your life that you need to help get you there. And then when we get to verse 24 and realize he also needs Zipporah to do things for him, there again, her decisive action is what preserves his life to then them have them continue on. How gracious of God to be so accommodating uh, when it says at various points there is rightly an anger and a frustration with Moses. But even in that anger and frustration is a determination on God's part to say, I'm not giving up on you and I'm not letting go of you. I know all the things about you that you wouldn't necessarily want to put on your resume or LinkedIn profile. And I'm still going to use you. And then the last thing we see in this chapter is God's willingness to do that is because there is a nation that is beloved. There is a people that are waiting on redemption. And so God's persistence to call Moses into this is because he says, you're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to tell Pharaoh that Israel... The whole nation is my firstborn. In other words, I don't look at the whole nation and say, here's the sum of them that are better than the others. Like, all of them together are mine, my firstborn. And I see the suffering that they're under. And Moses, they can't get out of this. And so you're not getting out of this. And I'm going to get you and them out of this eventually. But God loves them. He identifies with them. He sees that the injustices that are being done to his people back in Egypt as the mistreatment of his own children. That's, a, that's why we say God is a covenant God. He's a God who identifies with us. He makes promises to his people. It's then in the New Testament when we see the church being persecuted that Jesus would say uh, to Paul on the road to Damascus, why, why are you persecuting me? Right? When we have that kind of a relationship, nobody could say, hey, Peter, I'm treating you fine. I'm just going to mistreat your kids. Excuse me? It's a contradiction in terms. If I love my family, you can't mistreat my family, but somehow say you care about me and that God would so identify with his people to say they belong to me and therefore how you treat them is a reflection of what you think of me is to real, reveal the heart of God for his people. 
the heart of God that would eventually send his own son for his people. And there's something of this that causes then, at the end of our chapter, when Moses tells all of this to Aaron, and Aaron tells all of this to the people, that it says, they bowed their heads and worshiped. That this God is this persistent and loves us this much, can only be rightly and adequately responded to in worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and its power. We thank you for its truthfulness in the struggles that your own people had, their own hesitancies at times to fully trust you or to desire to be used by you. And we confess that thousands of years later, we we struggle with all of those same things. It's sometimes in our minds, it's hard to believe certain things, and sometimes in our bodies and in our behavior, it's hard to do the things that you call us to do. And we need you to be persistent with us. We need your grace to accommodate us, to reveal yourself in unique ways, to show us your faithfulness, to bring other people in our lives who are willing to say that they'll do things with us. Uh, and we, we thank you that when you look down upon us, you see us as part of your own family, as belonging to you. And so we, uh, we worship you. We acknowledge that you, uh, you don't need us, it's us that need you. And so we thank you for your grace to continually make yourself available to us. Help us through your Holy Spirit to just find all the ways that we could apply this truth uh, to be honest before you, but still to surrender to you and to let you have your way with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.